produced by Ranting Rhino Productions. Praxis Pedagogy exists to position our teaching and learning practice within different methodologies. We want to construct a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in our own teaching and learning and in our students' experience. Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 75 of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. I am really happy that you're here to listen to this episode. You are going to be blown away by Professor Donna Smith. She's a math instructor teaching college algebra at Sierra College in California. She believes that leading with compassion is the biggest factor in helping students to be successful. And that is fundamentally based on making students feel like they belong by recognizing them for every win and building their confidence. She focuses on helping them to develop their critical thinking skills as well as soft skills. And she loves teaching and you can see that coming through within the first five minutes of this episode. And she's always looking for innovative ways to engage students and to excite them about mathematics, which in this day and age is a true gem. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode is probably one of the best episodes that I've been privileged to be a part of. And it was an honor to have her on the show. Thanks again. We'll catch you on the other side. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you tuned into this episode, episode 75. We have a very special guest with us Today, we have Professor Donna Smith. Now, I know you, you want me to call you Donna, but we got to get the whole title in there. Uh, Donna, you are a math instructor at the at Sierra College in California. You teach college algebra uh, and someone who's in trades I, and who has taught trades for over a decade. I often hear that when students come through the system, they go, you know, we were told to go into trades because there was no such thing as math and science. And they figure out that there's 80% of what we do is math and science related. So, yes, it is. yeah. So when I, when I got uh, the email to get in touch with you to set up this podcast, I'm so excited because one, uh, I think I'm a late bloomer when it comes to math and algebra and going, yeah, I hated it in high school, but now I can really see the connection and the relevance. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy that you're here and it's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. And I'm glad that we converted you because um, it is the language of the sciences. Now, granted, math people think it's beautiful of and in its own um, discipline. And it is, but it is the language of the sciences and, and you just can't do much without it. And a lot of the things we do, there's math involved. You maybe don't realize it. Yeah, exactly. I have a very good friend who, uh, whose daughter went to a, a major university here in the lower mainland and she's getting her master's degree in physics. And she's actually thinking about going in PhD. I'm like, that's like, that's super high level stuff, right? Like high carumba. Yeah. My daughter originally was going to be a physics major. She turned out that she was an engineering major instead. So okay. that's okay. We'll, we'll allow that. <laughs> well, there's a lot of math and engineering, right? So yes, there is. Yes, there is. <laughs> that's amazing. So Donna, tell us a little bit about yourself. And when did you first realize that you loved mathematics enough that you want to teach it in college? Well, you know, I, it's a fan Funny that you asked that. I turns out I was originally a chem major. That was my original um, discipline was chemistry. 
not mm. mathematics, but I was always um, good in math. And I think not because it always came easy, but I had this belief and that my mother would tell me, you know, oh, you're really good in math. You, you're like your dad. You got it from your dad. But I don't think it was so much that I had some kind of inherent intrinsic ability, even though I think there is a scale of ability. I think what I had was this desire to stick with it till I got it. And that might be something that's lost. This tenacity, this, if it doesn't come easy, then, oh, I'm not good and I quit and I throw in the towel. But any person that's good at any skill um, has learned that, hey, you've got to put in the time and the effort and the practice in order to become better at that uh, skill. That's amazing. So what can we do to help build that tenacity? Because what you're talking about is grit too, right? That stick-to-itiveness. Yeah. Well, I think um, sometimes when people hear grit, it's almost like it sends a message of you're a loser because you don't have the grit. So I try to formulate it a little bit differently. I tell them about the science of learning, which I'm just learning about myself this summer for this grant that I'm working on. And I tell them that things stick in your brain when you make mistakes creates a, like an opening for the course to travail again, to, to stick it in there and say, okay, I need to practice that so I can get it. And so once you teach students that mistakes are good, they're valuable, once you teach them that problems don't get solved always immediately, and they can give you examples in their lives where it didn't happen right away that I got the solution. Sometimes we have to step away for a minute. Sometimes when we're in the shower, the answer comes sometimes the next morning it comes and that's because our brain works in two different ways it has what barbara oakley dr barbara oakley refers to as this focus mode where we're intently intent on a problem and then we have this other mode which is diffuse mode where we're relaxed we're not really thinking about it and solutions come and she even referred to i believe it was um Edison and uh, Salvador Dali used this practice of they would put marbles in their hand or not marble, steel ball bearings or uh, keys. And when, as they dozed off to sleep and that relaxed mode as the ball bearings hit the ground or the keys hit the ground, it woke them up. And a lot of times they had the solution to their problem. So I think one thing about that tenacity is telling them mistakes are okay. They're legitimate, they're good, and they're valuable and they help you. And then I show them some other techniques that I'm learning about, like interleaving, using visuals with words, um, uh, making sure that you can ask a question, ask an intelligent question of the content so you can encourage questions. Now, some teachers shut that down, but I always find something true in the question that they ask. And then I try to flip it back to ask a little bit more so that they can kind of come up with the solution themselves. And so when they see that response, that questions aren't belittled or questions aren't put down, then it's like, they start asking more and it's it's really cool. And then one time I asked students, this is how I did this multiplication. Because remember, I grew up without a calculator. In my era, calculators cost $345 for the little cheap one they give out at the bank. I remember that. I mean, it was a big thing to have a Hewlett Packard um, in school and then uh, Texas Instruments. That was just like a big thing. But they were $345 for a little scientific calculator. I'm dating myself. But no, anyway, okay. I said, so I, asked, <laughs> so I asked my students, so how would you do this? 
And it was amazing the different ways that they came up. So they began to see the value of that. There's not just one way to look at a problem um, even. And there's not one way to approach it. Like a lot of times students will say, I'll just show me one way and I'll get that way and I'm done. But what I try to show them, there's value in all the different ways. And some methods are better depending on the problem. So you're teaching them two tools. You're teaching them the skill of whatever that method is. Then you're teaching them the skill of which box do I pull from? Do I pull from the quadratic formula box? Do I pull from the factoring box? Do I pull from the using a graphing calculator box to give myself more of a visual? So it's just helpful for them to see that questions are valid, making mistakes are valid, and that um, a teacher can create that environment by asking them questions and allowing them to do the same. I'm so glad that you said all that because I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners, me included, who look back in our experience in math and go, it was the worst class ever because one felt like we were asking questions that were too simple in the sense of you should be getting this. You shouldn't be asking those kinds of questions or we were made to feel stupid. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to say everybody did that, but there were times where you felt like an idiot because you put your hand up and go, ah, I'm not sure I get this right. And, and people around you are either faking it or they are getting it. And you feel like you're the only one. Um, so I'm really glad to hear you say all that because that's really going to go a long ways in diminishing the barriers that people have of the fear of math, right? Yes. And you know, it's funny, uh, Dr. Barbara Oakley, she grew up hating math. It was trepidation and fear, but she was good in languages and she went on to join the army, um, learn Russian. And as a result of, of learning and getting these skills, she was way in a place where she was working with engineers. Said, Boy, if I could just learn what they know, I could do so much more. And so she went back to school uh, with very low skill set. So um, and seeing the value of the math and the science. And she now is a, has a PhD in engineering and teaches uh, about the science of learning. So it doesn't matter where you start. So even if in the past you've had bad experiences, I always tell students, erase all that. We're starting from scratch. I said, if you would have had me in second grade, we wouldn't have had this issue. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I love math and I'm excited and I'm animated and I make up fun stories to explain things that, you know, probably. And then I tell them, if you reveal this to anyone, you reveal my stories, and my little tricks to anyone, I'll deny it. And I'll say, look, I'm a graduate from UC Berkeley. Um, excuse me, we don't do such things. And they'll believe me. <laughs> so but anyway, I do I do the fun stuff. So I said, no matter where you start, it's where you finish and you can finish on top, but you're going to have to work. And but I'm going to love you through it. Oh, that's amazing. Do you think, do you think there's a connection between math and languages? Yes, I do. Um, I do believe that there is a connection um, between math and languages. Um, I have found that when we get to word problems per se in uh, math, that's where we really begin to see students struggle because they don't know how to break down a sentence. They don't know how to take an example what a noun is and what a verb is because what we do in math is, is we're efficient and so we will take that paragraph of information and we will eschew it down shrink it down so that it's small and concise and we get just what we need but if you can't take the english part you're not going to be able to get to the mathematical part so if you can do the translation because that's what it is you're translating it and there's a lot of rules and there's a lot of symbols and then the other thing that it's a little bit different with math or maybe the same is that some things in math are abstract when you see a cow as barbara oakley talks about 
I can, I can see a cow, but when I see an equal sign or if I see a plus sign or if I see an integration symbol or if I see a degree symbol, those are abstract things that I can give some concreteness to. So that makes it a little bit difficult to be able to take that abstract thought and make sure that people understand. And so that's what we do. We have manipulatives and we'll have a, I don't know if you ever wrote on a, we used to have teeter totters when I was little. Oh, yeah. I don't see them at parks anymore, but anyway, <laughs> I remember being mean to my younger sister because she'd always get a tummy ache when it was her chore to do the do the dishes. And I remember I'd get on the teeter totter and I I weigh more than her because I was older and I keep her up on one end and I was down on the other. Well, we use that teeter totter to talk about an equation. It's balanced when it's um, equal weights on each side. And if you do something on the other, we do. So it gives that notion that that symbol equals something that's tangible, that's concrete, that they can then associate. So I think that is what makes math sometimes a little bit more difficult. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. So Donna, when did you first discover your love for teaching? Cause you, you sound like a teacher and you, people, people can't see you, but you you've got the animations going, your hands are flying back and forth. Um, it would be a ton of fun to be in your math class for sure. Uh, but when did you find out that you had a love for teaching? Um, I think when one time when I was my, I think it was either my sophomore year, maybe it was my junior year. It was my junior year because I was at Pomona College and I was asked to work with the Summer Bridge program. And the Summer Bridge program helped students that were incoming freshmen that maybe came in with the skill set that wasn't where they should be, but they had the ability to be successful. And so um, they asked me what I tutor. And I noticed when I would tutor, students would say things like, whoa, oh, I, ah, oh, I get it. And that was such like, I don't know, it's like a drug. <laughs> I got so excited that students would understand my explain explanations. And I think it was because I was able to put the cookies on the bottom shelf so I could take something that was kind of complex, but I would put it on the bottom shelf so all the kitties could grab a cookie and take a bite and eat. And so that's when I recognized it. But at the time, um, I at, the, at that point in my life, I wanted to earn a Ph.D. and be the dean of students, even though I had no idea what a dean of students did. It just sounded like a cool thing. <laughs> it does sound pretty cool. Yeah. And then um, when I um, switched uh, majors, I switched from chemistry to math. And when I because I was working so hard in chemistry and not putting in any time in my math and I was doing about the same, I said, well, you know, maybe you should put your efforts in math. And you might do better. So I switched to math and then I went on. I was very fortunate. I was uh, accepted to Berkeley for my graduate degree. I was working. I uh, was working for my master's. And um, I remember my professor Bergman who told me, Donna, don't stop at the master's. Get your Ph.D. But I was like, oh, I was just kind of tired. And, and I got a job. I got a job teaching at a community college. Now, granted, I had little stints of teaching. I had taught graduate students um, enough algebra so they could be successful in statistics. I had taught a class with geometry for students who hated math, seventh graders on a Saturday morning, teaching them geometry. Oh. I had tutored. So I had different pockets of uh, experience and uh, American River College, that's not where I'm at now, took a chance on me and hired me and I, I soared. I did great. I loved it. And I was always trying to be innovative and try technology. So it was super. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't imagine. So did you completed your PhD? No, I stopped. Oh, I was tired of being a broke student. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> No I, I wish I had, I got a job. That's why I got a, 
right. American River, I mean, American River College, even though I hadn't finished my um, thesis for my master's, they hired me and they said, as long as you get it done by December. So I, yeah, I left. Okay. But it's still a master's degree. That's wow. I, I'm, I'm blown away by, by that. That's very cool. Um, so w- did you ever expect to be teaching math in higher ed? Like you, you said you were teaching grade sevens, geometry, and I can't imagine being in that class. Like Donna, come on, you're in grade sevens who hate geometry and let's just throw Donna into the fire and just, let's just see how she does. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was fun though. It was fun. Um, it was, I was hard though. Cause it was early in the morning on a Saturday. Can you imagine even I, myself as a seventh grader, I'm thinking really, is that what I want to do on my Saturdays? Oh, man. Um, but um, I think, it wasn't until I wasn't going to pursue the PhD. Actually, even if I had, I probably would have been a university professor instead of a community college professor because the requirements to teach at the university, most universities is I have to have to have, have to have a doctorate in the discipline. Right. Right. Wow. So can you explain a little bit of some of the significant barriers for you on your journey of learning and, and in the realm of chemistry and, and math? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I can tell about some of my barriers by telling you about some successes and Mm -hmm. um, what instructor interventions happened that really, really helped me. So uh, one of them uh, was in my psychology class when I was at Pomona. Um, my psychology professor pulled me aside and she said, you know, Donna, in class, you know, you speak up, you seem to understand the material, but on your tests, your tests aren't reflective of what I believe you know, because you demonstrate it the way you speak in class or share in class. And just that instructor pulling me aside and saying that to me and then saying, you know, at minimum, you should be a B plus. And for me to be told that you can do well and the expectation was high i think that was really a help for me and of course of course on the next test i did well so that teacher expectation um, makes a huge difference and so in chemistry for example i was struggling in organic chemistry and organic is easier than inorganic Uh, but maybe inorganic would have been easy for me because that's the one with more math but anyhow i was just struggling and I was getting like a D and I thought there's no way I can get into graduate school with D's on my transcript because I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. And um, but I didn't have anyone come aside and say, you know, Donna, I noticed that you're not doing well. What are you how are you preparing? What are you doing? And I didn't have the wherewithal to go and ask. I was the only African-American in my class. So maybe I had a little bit of this stigma of uh, you can't do it because, you know, you're not smart. Uh, and I did have a chemistry professor. I was at a different university who said to me um, in his chemistry class, he said, you're the smartest one of your kind to come through here. And I, um, I remember I was so young. I, I knew what he said wasn't right. I didn't quite understand it. I was thinking, well, I'm like a brand of cow. I don't, I don't get it. And I didn't know what he meant by your kind, but I knew that it was demeaning. And so um and he didn't teach very well. So I went into my next class when I transferred to Pomona underprepared, even though I got a B plus. And in his class, 93.5 was a B plus. You had to have a 95 or higher to get an A. So anyway, um, I think um, those might have been barriers that if I had someone pull me aside and say, hey, you can do this or to question me. And so that's something I try to do 
I try to intervene early and, and see that are they underprepared or ill-prepared and should be in a different course? Or is it maybe something I can do alongside to get them up to speed? Or maybe sometimes it's just one little piece that students aren't understanding. And once they get that one piece, which is like the foundation, they can scaffold up to learn the other information. So, and then the other, um, which you consider a barrier was to me, an absolute intervention. Every time I went to my thesis advisor, Professor Bergman, I can't thank him enough for what he did for me. He would ask me a question, and I knew every time I went to his office, because I'd ask him a question, I knew he's gonna ask me a question, I'd be so irritated. I was like, really dude, another question? I came to you, but I didn't show him that. I was respectful, I was well trained. (laughs) 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 But I would leave there and I'd be so frustrated. But then I'd answer the question, and then I go, oh, that's the answer. That'll help me answer the question I asked him. So what that did is it built my confidence. So when I left Berkeley, I was kind of a wee bit arrogant. <laughs> Not because yeah. I had a degree from Berkeley, yeah. but because he instilled in me the belief that I can figure it out. I can figure it out. I just got to ask an intelligent question of the text and I can figure it out. And so that means, and that was that tenacity piece. I always wanted to find a different way or go a different way or, or, or if this didn't work, let's try this. Where I'm seeing that with my students now, it's like you almost have to tether them along. They don't have this ability. Well, if this doesn't work, maybe if I shut down my computer and try it again, it'll work. Or maybe if I use a different browser, this will work. Or um, maybe if I turn off this notification, it'll work. None of that happens with them. It's like they don't have this... Um, get up and go. But I think that's because of this confidence. And maybe they might have been like me as a mom. I tried to do too much for my daughter. But um, she 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 didn't ask me a lot of questions. She took a class for me. I I think she asked me one question. (laughs) So, I mean, not you would think as your math professor and your mom, you would approach me. But I think she had that same kind of resolve that I like figuring it out. And so um, so those have been my barriers is not believing in myself, which is not having confidence. But my faculty member that kept asking me questions helped me with. And then the teacher that pulled me inside and said, you're capable of much more. And he didn't say a C. She didn't say a C student, a minimum B plus. So she set the bar, the low bar high, which is awesome to do for any student to let them know that they can excel. Yeah, that's such a positive message for today, especially, right? Because I I don't think we emphasize that enough that, well, let me back up. I think we hear a lot about you can do whatever you want to do, but I don't think, I don't hear a lot of specifics in, in that, in that mantra that's out there right now. It's like, you know, you can do whatever you set your mind to do. And it's like, well, I don't think my daughter who's five, four will ever make it to the WNBA. So as much as she wants to, probably not going to happen. Right. But that doesn't mean that she can't, like you said, figure stuff out, get really good at what she wants to do. And and I often wonder if we miss that connection between desire, hidden ability and opportunity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, when I have had students um, in my class where I'm suspect of their ability to pass because I'm questioning their foundations. And so, but instead of me saying, I doubt that you're going to make it to the WNBA because you're five foot four, I would say you can do it, but I'm going to tell you, your road is going to not be an easy one. 
and I'm going to map out what you're going to need to do so that I can sell them on the fact that don't everyone let someone say you can't, but just know that can comes with the price can doesn't come with, cause I want it. <laughs> I want it. So therefore it shall be no can comes with a, a, a price that you have to be willing to pay. So I tell the students, I think you can do it, but you're going to have to do 10 topics uh, every three days where the average student is only having to do three because they have more of a skill set. I said, but you can do that, but just know that that's what your job is going to be. So are you willing to bite off that, that part of the, or eat that elephant one bite at a time? Is that a bite you're willing to take? And if you are, I'm with you, I'm all with you, but I'm just letting you know that it's going to take some effort on your part. And I can't coddle you as much as I, that's my nature to nurture. I said, but I'm not helping you if I do that too much. I'm, pre I'm preventing you from recognizing the work that's needed to be done to be successful. Let's face it. If, if, if things were easy, everybody would do it. No, yeah, exactly. some things are hard. And so that's why everybody isn't doing it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And, and oftentimes I think we forget that people who are successful have had years of trial and error, more trial and error than success, right? You're so right. You're so right. And all we see is the little bit that's a, the iceberg, you know, the part that's sticking out above the water, but you don't see all that work that happened underneath that big part there. So you're so right. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you come to understand the role and influence and impact of the compassion factor in your practice? Because it's, it's obvious it's there. You kind of wear it on your sleeve. If I can say that out loud. Um, but how did you, how did you come to understand that part of your role as a, as an educator facilitator? Well, thank you for the compliment. And I thank you for you wear it too, because I was a little nervous before the podcast and you calmed my nerves. So, uh, you wear it well. Um, I think, um, I think when you've been hurt, or you've gone through a struggle or you've been treated poorly that you have a sensitivity for others that might be struggling. It may not be the same struggle. So for example, my professor that pulled me aside, you know, we talked and I told her, I said, you know what? I went to the store. <laughs> I was so surprised. I said, I went to the grocery store, in this Claremont where I lived as, as a student. And it, it, it weren't a lot of people at the college that looked like me, at least not at Pomona. There were some of us, but not a lot. Uh, all of us, by the way, when we did finally get to meet and hang out as a group, turned out all of us were student body presidents. It's like, oh, okay, that's oh, how you make Oh, isn't us. that interesting? Interesting, yeah. Well, anyway, when we went to, to the store, I told her I was looking for grits and I couldn't find grits. I just didn't imagine a store that couldn't have grits. I thought everybody ate grits. I didn't realize some people don't eat that. <laughs> <laughs> and she said to me, well, and I told her about, I was looking for some pantyhose, nylons, and the only color they had were tan. And you would think tan would match my complexion because I, I kind of feel like I'm a tan color, but that tan was not the tan that they were talking about. And I told her this story and she said, well, yeah, same for me. You know, I'm Jewish. And so there's no kosher food in the stores and all kinds of things like that. So maybe her sensitivity toward me was might've been because of the fact that she may have experienced a little prejudice. She didn't share that she did or did not. Um, but I, I knew that to be true. And so it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or what your race is or who, whatever, we've all had situations that were difficult. 
But if your mother, my mom, was a domestic that cleaned houses, chances are I am not going to belittle the janitor. I'm going to get to know their name and thank them for keeping my uh, my, my office scene. So I thank Vlad for, I know his name. So I treat him differently. So I think I have a sensitivity for that because of my mom, but my mom, though she was a domestic, she did go to Tuskegee in the evening and she was very um, articulate. And matter of fact, she, she, she used big words all the time. Like we would say, oh, they puked. And she would say, no, they regurgitated. She didn't even say vomit. I mean, you know, <laughs> okay. so it was like she used these big words. Well, as a kid, I learned to do that as well. I didn't know I did that. And so though she was a domestic, she was an intelligent woman. So you can't judge a person based on their position. And so therefore, I don't look at any of that. I look at um, your potential and where you can go. And I think that was partly from my mom who told me that the only way that a black person can get ahead is by having an education. And I tell my students that and I said, but you can take off the adjective black. I say anyway, any person can get ahead is to have an education. Then I add in also and to own your own business. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> so, interesting. but, so I think the compassion part is um, because of the things I've experienced also as my mom, you know, she was the first black um, operator, um, both in the north, I mean, on the east coast at uh, Ma Bell and then our Atlantic Bell and then over here on the west coast with Pacific Bell. And she was mistreated. You know, people would put their cigarettes out on her sandwich and say, oh, I'm sorry. And they didn't want to sell her hair sets because they thought that the black would rub off just crazy, stupid stuff. But she always had one friend um, who was white that was kind. And so she always focused on the kindness. So she said, kindness will cure any cat. And I didn't know what she was talking about when she said that, but she says, kindness will bring people over. And so that was what she modeled for me. So I'm ever so grateful for her work ethic, uh, for her uh, teaching me <laughs> all these big words and to be sensitive to those that don't have. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because um, I'm often, I shouldn't be, but I'm often surprised at just how powerful the influence of a mom can be. Right. And, you know, we, we, we have four children ourselves. They're mostly all adults now. Um, my wife's a nurse. Um, but when our, when our youngest was going into kindergarten, we pulled them out of school to homeschool just for a bunch of different reasons. And my wife is brilliant and we did all that stuff, all that stuff. But the most important thing that, that has come out of that whole experience is the influence that she's had on them. And it sounds like your mom was not only an influencer, but she was powerful in how she influenced you. And, and I can see that coming through you and even to how you uh, influence your class and, and the students in your class. And, and that's, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you for, for, for all that you do with that in, in that regard. Oh, thank you. You know what's You're so welcome. funny though? My mom was an introvert. She was oh, very really? soft-spoken. Yeah. So yeah. I'm totally the opposite in terms of being outspoken and more flamboyant. She was more reserved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I wonder too, if there was the high standard that she held for you, right? And that must've had a deep impact on, on you and in, in, in your life. And, and especially as you were moving into the career world, right? Yeah, I think it did. I think um, her work ethic was just amazing. I mean, she cooked dinner, you know, six nights a week. Plus she worked full time. Um, she was a widow when I was six and she had four kids. And so she, she made us hot breakfast every morning, except for on Saturdays and Sundays. And then um, 
uh, on, she cooked and she made our lunches. So she did all of that and worked. So it's like, what? yeah, I don't, I'm trying to cook six nights a week just for myself. <laughs> Eat out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the benefit of a exactly. career. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Wow. That's amazing. And, um, I'm blown away and that, thank you for sharing that. That's great. So Donna, what are some specific strategies or activities that you use to help your students? You've talked a little bit about uh, some of the stuff that you do, but what do you find that you go back to time and time again, that just works? Well, um, I'm, I'm trying some new things. Um, and what, well, one thing that works is if you can learn your student's name, the first week of school, um, with the pandemic, most of my students are online and I'm teaching one class on ground and the on ground class was supposed to be hybrid. Part of the students were supposed to be distant and another group face to face, but the technology because of COVID didn't arrive in time. And so the online part canceled, but I was prepared for both. So I'm really struggling uh, this semester because I'm doing things as if it's online, but we're actually face to face. and these students are struggling because it's like I wanted an on-ground class because I want to do nothing to do with technology. So I'm struggling a little bit. So one of the things is I am learning their names, but I'm doing it a different way. I used to memorize them. I used to have them go around the room, but it would take so much time. Um, I would say, okay, so the first person would say, I'm Tim. I said, hi, Tim. And the next person would say, I'm Diana. I said, hi, Tim. Hi, Diana. Then the next person would say, hi, I'm Tim. I'm Jeff. Then I go, hi, Tim. Hi, Diana. Hi, Jeff. And the longest I've ever done was 55 students, but I was younger. There was a few I messed up and I told them, I warned them ahead of time. I might jack up the pronunciation. You know, Donna Smith yeah. is kind of you know easy, two syllables, one syllable. <laughs> but anyway, so I would try to learn their names uh, the first way. And I told them, if you sit in the same spot, um, um, that, that, that really helps. And Lakeisha, um, when I, the person that I got the grant with, with Top Hat, she was sharing that that's, she does it the first week of school for all her students. Well, anyway, so this semester I'm doing something different. I'm having them do video introductions. Oh, And then I record myself watching their video and I'll oh. pause the video and say, oh my goodness, you take care of plants. Mine are half dead. What can I do? You got to show me. And then I go back and I go, you can be successful. If they mention I'm scared of math. I'm oh, you're in the right place. If you're afraid of math, I'm the right teacher for you. And I go on and say that. So their video is no longer than a minute, 30 seconds. Most of them, it's 25 seconds. Me to record and over it. And then I do it on Zoom. So it's got my picture and then their video. And then I upload it so that they can see the video video recording. So I'm trying that. And the students seem to really like watching other people's recordings. And then I can go back too because there's three students I'm getting their names mixed up. They all begin with C's. And so I'm mixing up Cole and Cody and Chase. And um, <laughs> so I got to watch their videos and that'll help me. So getting to know their names, I think is helpful. It gives them a sense of belonging. And then I use a top hat, which allows me to ask them class, like right, like a like poll ed everywhere where you can ask them a question, but it's anonymous. So I just told them, what fun thing did you do this summer? So I had them put that in uh, and I can tell them, how are you feeling? <laughs> you know, that better than last week. Not so good. Great. Everything's fine. And then I can go back later and see who said what so I can reach out to them. So they have the space to be honest, but it's anonymous, but also in a place where I can reach out and help them. And I can make it totally anonymous where I don't know either, but I have to watch that because they're kind of a younger group. And so they get clandestine if 
If they know I don't know who said what, they put crazy yeah. stuff up. So, um, and then the other thing is I'm, I found that having them do the work, when they do the work, that's where they're going to blossom because they can ask questions if they get stuck and their confidence, I've seen it over and over again, that their confidence just grows by them doing more practice, more work on their own. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So when we, when we think about soft skills, we often think about soft skills in humanities, right? Like, you know, learning how to read other people's emotions, le- learning how to control our own emotions, how we communicate and, and, and all those things. But you, you take a, a, a unique approach to teaching mathematics where you try to blend in some of the soft skills in, in your mathematics courses. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, this semester, because of the grant that I received from Top Hat for my college algebra with support, it's a, normally a four-unit course, college algebra, but because it has a support component, an additional two units is added on. And as a result, that gives me more time. And so uh, one of the skills that students sometimes come in, especially coming right out of high school, and especially if they weren't in a college prep program like my daughter was, um, they don't know how to do certain things. For example, when you're in high school, you go into class, you pretty much stay in the same room. You might switch a few classes, uh, but you, and you have kind of like a regimen that's already outlined for you. Well, in college, you're given a syllabus, but they might not know what to do with that thing. You know due dates, but they don't know how to plan out the study times to prepare for the due dates, especially if they're taking multiple classes. And so I am teaching them the importance of what does it look like to be participant or attending. So I spell that out for them. So attendance means you have to come to class and you have to be on time. So after five minutes, the timer goes away that checks your time and you're considered late. If you don't stay the whole time, uh, that's leaving early. Um, And that's a great skill. One of the biggest thing employers have is that you can't get employees to show up to work on time. And I remember my mother getting an award for being on time five years straight. Now this is a woman with little children, four of them, a a widower, a widow, sorry. And, um, uh, but she, five years on time to work, got in a plaque. (laughs) So it can happen. You can do it, right? So it can, you can do it. She had that resolve to make it happen. But so I teach and that. And then I said, and also you have to be prepared when you come to class. So there's certain things that I ask them to watch before they come to class, some videos. And so we can discuss it so that everybody can participate and be at the same place. So if it took a person longer to understand it, then they're in a better position because they still are at the same place because they've all watched it. Whether it took them 20 minutes to get it or an hour to get it, when they arrive at the class, they're all on equal footing. So you don't have this sense of, oh, I don't know what they're talking about unless you didn't do the assignment, which is fine. You learn. That's how you learn, right? That's a mistake. (laughs) She said, have this done. There's a reason why. Um, And then there's certain things you have to have written out to show that you've been doing the work yourself because now um, cheating is, is, it's kind of become um, too easy to do. And so students are going out to certain apps or out, not apps, but using certain apps or going to certain websites. So I'm asking them to demonstrate their uh, understanding. And I said, it's one thing to understand something in your brain, but that's the problem with a lot of scientists. They don't know how to communicate their understanding. So you have to have the ability to write down what you believe the I mean, you have to write down the steps you took to come to that conclusion. And so that's a soft skill to be able to communicate 
you're not not having it all scratch written all over place. No, I require that it's been written a certain way that you label the assignment with what the topic is that you notice that this was for homework or was this studying for a sample or was this just working through problems or was this an uh, additional assignment? They have to label what it is and designate it what it is. And they have a portfolio where they put it in certain parts. So we put together the little portfolio. It's just a binder. But I call it a portfolio because now it's a presentation of your work, not a place to stuff a bunch of paper that looks like a hogwash. So I'm teaching them the soft skill of organization and how to show up and be prepared. And then I'm showing them the value of these, uh, what I call from learning scientists about things about um, uh, being able to retrieve things. So at the beginning of class, I'll ask them a question and I'll pop it up on top hat and they answer the question. And they don't get dot points if you, if you get it wrong. It's just the practice of retrieving is good for you to be able to recall something. Some students have this fake sense of that they know something because they read it. Me reading something doesn't mean I know it. I watched this lady do a pivot table. I understood everything she was doing when she was doing that pivot table. You asked me to go do a pivot table. No, I have to actually do it myself to better understand it. So they have this false sense because I read it. I know it. No, you have to be able to retrieve it. Can you retrieve it? Can you tell me what the difference of squares is? Can you tell me what it means to have a trinomial? What that means? Oh, it's three terms. Oh, yeah. Well, does this fit it? If the square root of X, that's a term. No. So I, I do this quick retrieval so that the students can understand it. And that's all part of learning science, the science of learning. And that's something I think is not a soft skill, but if you understand how you learn, then you're not upset with me when I keep bringing up material that you're thinking, I already did this. Why are you keep bringing it back and expecting me to know it? Because that is how you learn is if you interleave, you switch, you come back, you go back, you retrieve, you practice all of that. You stop, you take a break. All of those things um, help students to be successful. And, and there's many more, but just that's a taste. Oh, you're firing me up, Donna. This is so cool because it's, it's, it's very much like in, in certain ways, it's like when my kids were younger, I would, when they wanted, let's just use an example. They wanted a puppy. Right. And so I would say to them, oh, before I answer your question, you have to sit down, do some research. I'll show you how to do that, but do some research. And this is what, this is it's kind of funny and blows people away. I would require a PowerPoint presentation from my kids. Are like, you serious? Yeah. So not, not, not like a, <laughs> not like a 20 slide thing and no animations. I didn't, none of that. If that was on there, cool. But what I wanted, what I wanted to teach them was one, do your research, think through what you want, plan out how you're going to, to do this, but then actually you have to actually learn how to talk what you're thinking. Right. And, yeah. and what you're talking about is very much the same thing because I'm thinking in my mind, she's teaching them how to organize. She's teaching them logic. Like they don't, they don't, they probably know that as you're getting them to write out their, this, their, their, their work in the trades world, we call that a sequence of operations. And that becomes critical if you want to be good at servicing and troubleshooting. So figuring out why things aren't working, wow. you need, you need to be able to go through some kind of list in your head based on what you know of the concept of how this thing should work and going through these logical steps. Now you start asking questions and you get answers. So you're doing the very same thing from my perspective. You're saying, I want you to show the work. Tell me how you did this. 
right. it's it's actually forcing them to logically step out how they're doing it. And I've done the same thing in my class where I've asked them to write out what they've done. And when they get to that, that spot where they're not quite sure, invariably that's where they went wrong in the problem. Right. Right. And so it, I, you're firing me up, Donna. This is, oh, you're this firing is, me up too, because now I have another terminology. I mean, another term I can use, you need sequencing and the logical yeah. steps so you can troubleshoot. So this yeah. is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in any stretch of the imagination trained in math, but to me, math is, I often say math. And this is why I asked you the question earlier. To me, math is just another communication device. It's a language. And it once is, I, it is definitely a language, and it, and 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 also in that language, which is what makes it so beautiful, it is the science of it is the language of sciences. But all by itself, even if it didn't communicate to it needed for physics or engineering or biology or statistics or whatever, even in itself, it's beautiful. Ah, but that's for people like me. <laughs> Well, but yeah, no, I got kind of fired up about all this too. But you know, in all honesty, I should point out that where this all came from was teaching to the whole student. And I got this concept from two colleagues. I didn't know them at the time. I just saw them at a webinar and they're from uh, Ohio um, uh, State Community College. They're um, Amy uh, Hatfield and Jessica LaCury. And that was what they talked, they t trained on. Now they did it using a uh, paper more in terms of tracking thing where I'm using um, Top Hat, but the ideas came from them about mindset and the learning of science. And I'm teaching them about how sleep makes a difference and how caffeine affects your learning and how marijuana affects your learning and how alcohol affects your learning. And so people say, well, you know, I, I, I can drink coffee and I can still be fine. Um, but it turns out you are um, having you when you coffee has a six hour half life. And so there's this uh, famous scientist. I apologize if I get his name wrong, but I believe it's Matt Walker. He's a neuroscientist out of UCLA. And he talks about sleep is so important. And as Americans, we're sleep deprived. We think it's cool to say, oh, I only got four hours of sleep. No, we should be getting seven to nine. And we belittle people. You slept nine hours. You must be sick. That's actually healthy. And he looked healthy. When a person doesn't get enough sleep, their brain has toxins that are actually in there that don't get flushed out. And so time over time over time of you not flushing out those toxins, it's not healthy. So we need sleep. So I'm teaching them all those little pieces of the puzzle kind of interweave throughout the course, not necessarily a soft skill, but just letting them know that the way you learn is impacted about how you live your whole life. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. And I have colleagues too, that, that even go into distraction issues. So your phone, for instance, right. And the science behind the notifications, like the bings and the dings and the notification badges and all that stuff. And I, I'm a, I'm a, uh, a love, uh, lover of Cal Newport's work, uh, especially his book called deep work and how he exposes the, 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 the traps and pitfalls of being distracted and working in a distracted world. And so I have colleagues that are doing the, the same thing only with, with this issue of your phone and, and how it affects your learning. Very cool. Donna, how has the student response been to your kind of perspective and, and practice of uh, doing what you're doing with math class? Well, um, some of these things are new, especially the science of learning piece and then the portfolio uh, piece. This is new. So 
You'll have to ask me again at the end of the semester, but I think it's going to be a lot like how I felt with Professor Bergman. When I went to his office, I knew before I went in there, I said, I know he's going to ask me a question. So I was already irritated. But in retrospect, I thought it was the best thing he could have ever done for me. And so I'm hoping that even though I'm feeling a little pushback, but because, you know, I'm the teacher, what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> they got to do it, right? I mean, and, it's, and I let them know up front, you know, what, what you're expected of you. Um, so, but I'm hoping at the end, they'll say, you know what, this was really valuable. I was frustrated at first that you required so much of us that you have us keep all this record of everything that we have to do these things. I have these things called knowledge checks. Cause I use a platform called Alex and basically it asks you just about anything you did recently. And it doesn't tell you the name of the topic or anything. It just puts the problem up there and how I tell them, I said, the purpose of that is to help entrench that in your brain so you'll hold on to the content longer because students can cram and study and for and do well on a test but ask them any information two days later they don't remember so that's what happens when they get to the final or if it's cumulative in math where you have to know the previous content especially in trigonometry because i teach trig this semester in statistics as well but i've taught the whole gamut up to calculus and differential equations because of the building nature of math, you have to hold on to the information. So I'm hoping that they'll find it okay. Now, I do have students that reach out to me that I've been strict with. Matter of fact, one student was really angry because I told him in order to take the final, everybody has to do this. You have to complete 90% of the homework. Because I know if you do the work, you'll understand it, you'll build the confidence, tests won't freak you out. So um, she was really upset. I don't understand why you're requiring this. I mean, I, I, I've gotten B's on the last couple of tests. And I said, well, anybody can study to a test. I, I give you what's going to be on it. Who couldn't do that? I said, but I want to know that you know the material. But I didn't say that to her. I said to her, what can I do to help you get to the topics? I said, I have some time. Maybe we can Zoom a couple of times and I can get you up to speed. Because no need to have that argument. I'm going to win. I'm the teacher. I already set the syllabus. You already agreed to it. So that's she's going to lose with that argument. So I don't even set up that proposition. I just say the thing that she really needs. The bottom line is you need help. So how can I help you? Because I'm not changing the rule for you. You're going to make it happen. <laughs> I go Vera on them. That's my mom. Oh, that's name. great. Donna. I love it. I love it. But it's, you got to make it happen. And do you know that student texts me every semester and says, Professor, I did really well in my math class. And da, 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 da. So I think um, they may not like me at the moment, but I just have to get over that. And then there's some that do. They'd say, I really appreciate you being so accessible. I really appreciate that you respond right away. I really appreciate that you've laid out the course so that I know exactly what's expected of me. It's not a surprise. And that, you know, and I, I tell them I'm human. I make mistakes. I do things wrong. So, you know, let me know if I make a mistake. And, and I don't beat myself over over it because I already know mistakes are good. Shut up. They're good to go. Make them all the time. It's called being a human. It's just the bad thing is if you keep making the same mistake, that's not a good one. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I, I, there, I, I, uh, I'm speechless. What can I say? Um, it's, it's amazing because I just see this holding a high standard with empathy, right? That yeah. and you're not, you're not going to negotiate the high standard. Like that's, that's set. We're, and I love what you say there. It's like, you know, you're not going to win this argument, but let me reframe the situation for you so that you feel successful and you will be successful. You just don't know it yet. Yes. I love it. That's good. I, yeah. Reframe it. Yeah. Asset frame it, frame it so that it's a positive 
Because like you said, and I'm telling you, when you set high standards, like my psychology professor, that sends a message to me that you think I'm capable. So I quiz you because I care, I care. I challenge you because I care. Not I care and I let you slide. No, now I kind of do a little bit because you know, at the end of the semester, I feel bad. I have somebody that's put in 95 hours and they're three topics short of the 90%. So I, I'll, I'll cut them some slack. They still got to do the topics, but I'll say, I'll give you an extra day. And I've built it into my system. So the final's normally on Thursday. Since everybody gets their own tests, it's, it's cool. And I'll give them an extra day to do it. And the people who get it done on time, they're happy. They're finished. They're, these other students are stressing out because they got to get these three topics done and take the final. That's on them. They learn a lesson. Last minute stuff doesn't serve you. And, you, and I told you what you needed to do. I spelled it out. So that's on you. And it's okay for you to learn that lesson the hard way. I've learned lessons the hard way. But yeah, I think setting that standard and like you said, what did you say? High standard with empathy. I'm going to hold on to that. Yeah, that's yours for free. <laughs> All good. Um, so Donna, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Um, I will I will be brave and ask if you wouldn't mind coming back on the show uh, next year, like next calendar year, to give us an update on some of the stuff that you're doing in class now to, to kind of help answer the rest of the question of how was the student response to the, these new things that you're doing? Um, you don't have to give me an answer now, but uh, I'll, I'll leave the invitation open. And, uh, okay. Okay, I think I love you that. This is what I was thinking. <laughs> you asked me the question. Gotta have thinking, you back. Gotta have you back. How to lie with statistics. <laughs> yeah, well, back if I can change the data so it looks good. <laughs> well, there's that old adage, right? Stats don't lie, but statisticians do, right? Yeah, and yeah. So yeah, I would be out. happy to. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. So Donna, the last question I have for you today um, is what would you recommend for those who are finding themselves facing their next math course, what would you recommend that they start doing now um, to get prepared? Um, I think um, it, it doesn't hurt to review the content that you're, that you know might be prerequisite for the next course. So if you search a website where you can review it, I think it'll help you go in with a little more confidence. And then um, taking advantage of the resources that the professor provides for you. Because some students don't. There's some students that know that they can reach out for help, but there's other students for cultural reasons, for uh, social reasons, for their personality trait, are um, reluctant to take advantage of the resource. Number one being your professor, if there's past peers or tutors available. So I, I, I used to, um, when we were on campus, I would take students out of my out of the classroom. I said, okay, I want to show you my office. I show them here's my office. I said, you get one point extra credit if you come by and see me other than today in my office hours. And then I said, and I have treats, which is like candy, which is not the healthiest thing, but I have treats in there just in case you're hungry and you want something to tide you over. And so that would force them to come in and then they weren't so afraid to come to my office hours. So I would literally have students outside of my office waiting to get in, bouncing off of one another questions and things. And I would rotate. I would ask, answer this question, rotate to the next one, rotate to the next one. So, um, you know, um, that's one of the things that I would want that they take advantage of the resources that the teacher has for them and um, to believe that they can do it. And then, like I said, if you run into trouble, reach out to your professor. Yeah. Amazing. That's great. I actually, I lied. I had one more question for you after this one. Um, but what, what, impact do you want to have 
in your teaching practice as you move forward? I want to have the same impact that Professor Bergman had on me. He made me feel. Because sometimes I don't often get that when students see me for the first time because they see Donna Smith, they don't know what I look like. You know, now they do. But in the past, and I've been teaching almost 40 years, the assumption was that I'm not smart, I'm not articulate, I'm not bright. Do I even have a degree? Because they would ask me these questions. But of course, I never responded the way I am right now. I would just answer the question. But because of the confidence that he instilled in me by asking me those questions and letting me know that you can figure it out was the best thing he could have ever done for me. And that's what I hope, that I make my students feel confident, even if they don't have me again as their professor, that they can do it, that they're capable and they're able and that it's okay to work hard. There's nothing wrong with working hard. It's valued and it's something that should be appreciated. And an employer one day will appreciate it. And when you're the employer, you will appreciate employees that have that same confidence and work ethic. Powerful. Thanks, Donna. All right, everybody, you, you heard it here. Work ethic, stick to grit. These things don't come naturally. We got to work at it, right? And, and there's no better time than now to start. And it doesn't matter what our backgrounds are. It doesn't matter where we've come from. It doesn't matter who we are as people. We can learn to persevere. And some will get it sooner than others, but that's okay. Don't worry about them. Just worry about yourself. Look at your own track. Look at your own path. And if you have the opportunity to take a course from Professor Donna Smith, you need to do this, right? And uh, you will, I guarantee, I have not sat in her class, obviously, but I can guarantee you that her class will be one of the most dynamic and different classes you'll have ever taken in your entire life. Professor Smith, Donna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you do. For not just for the system, uh, but for your students. And uh, there is no doubt that you will continue to make a huge impact uh, in students that come through your classroom, whether it's for the first time, the fourth time, uh, or however many after that. And, and I know that there'll be more students who text you in the future because of the, the influence that you have. So thank you for, for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you.